0: It has been said that the worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. George Bernard Shaw put those words into the mouth of the Reverend Anthony Anderson in the second act of his play, The Devil's Disciple. And the statement certainly summarizes what Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it also rebukes all those who fold their arms complacently and smile indulgently and say... Ask me if I care. Ask me if I care. Today we're going to start a study in a a new book. We're going to start a study in the book of Nehemiah, Brother Jim. Nehemiah. You might want to turn to it now. Some of you might need a little bit of extra time to find it. It's in the Old Testament. But I want you to be turning there. We'll read it in just a few moments. But I want you to keep that phrase, Ask me if I care in your mind as we get ready to read it, because I think you'll see that it's going to be important today but first before we read and before we actually get into that topic this is a new study and anytime we start a new study there's a, a whole bunch of introductory stuff we want to get through Of course you, you those of you who have attended here for any length of time know that our primary method of teaching and preaching here is uh, we, we believe in teaching and preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, thought by thought, uh, something like that. We believe in letting the Bible speak. You're not interested in my words. You're not interested in my opinions. Frankly, neither am I. I, I want to know what the Bible says. And so that's what we're trying to do. And so it's a new study. And any time we, we undertake to take a, to a new study in a, in a book like this, we want to have some background information in place and some questions come to mind. And so, kind of by way of introduction this morning, I wanted to share some thoughts, some answers to what I believe probably are questions that some of you are asking in your minds right now about this. And one of those questions probably is, why in the world are we going to go to Nehemiah? Why in the world would we go to an Old Testament book? I can imagine some of you are asking that question even as we speak, and I see some of you smiling at me, so I know you're asking that question right now. is in the Old Testament. Why study it? Don't we live in the New Testament? to hear that. Sometimes, during the last few years, we have undertaken several studies. We did a topical study entitled "What We Believe," which was meant to clarify our doctrinal position on some things. Did that right when we first started together in our relationship together. Uh, we looked at the Book of John. We looked at the Book of First Timothy. We just finished up a study in Acts. We looked at a, a study in the Parables of Jesus. And, and what all of those things have in common up to this point is that they were all New Testament studies. We have not yet undertaken an Old Testament study, and so why, why look at the Old Testament? I would suggest that there are a couple of reasons why. One reason can be seen in 2 Timothy chapter three and verse number sixteen, that says, "All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect." Did you hear that first word? All Scripture. Just as the New Testament is inspired by God, so too is the Old. All scripture when the apostle paul wrote that to timothy he was considering in his mind not just the writings of the new which were not yet complete at that point but also the writings of the old all scripture is profitable profitable all scripture is inspired by god god breathed and so nehemiah is just as profitable just as useful to us as any other book that we might study in the bible Paul clarified even more in Romans chapter 15 verse number 4. He said, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. What was he talking about, the things that were written in former days? He was talking about the Old Testament. It was written for our instruction. And so although I'm of the opinion that we should concentrate on the New Testament primarily because we do live in the New Testament, I do think also it would be a grave mistake for us to ignore the Old. And so I think it's time. We've had like four in a row now New Testament time to go back, look at the old. So we're going to look at Nehemiah. And so you say, all right, it's worth studying and I'll, I'll accept that. That's an answer to one question, but you know I, I, I've, always, I've always struggled with where does Nehemiah fit? If you're like me, you try to figure out where these things fit in the history of the Old Testament. And I was always confused. matter of fact, I have been studying this for weeks now trying to figure out how all this fits together. And so I thought perhaps maybe some of you might have that same question. Where does this book fit in the timeline, the historical timeline of the Old Testament? If I'm going to try to picture all of that history, where does this fit in? And so let me give you a 100 mile an hour summary of the history of the Old Testament so you'll see where it fits in. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Book of Genesis. God created the world and all that is therein. He also created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who fell into sin and dragged the whole world with them. And from that point on, all have been lost in sin. If the book of Genesis had stopped right there, it would have been a pretty sad thing, but thankfully it didn't. And God had a plan to redeem mankind, and that plan included a particular people, a particular group of people. He set a man named Abraham apart and blessed him in a particular way because Abraham was a man of faith. Romans chapter 4 says Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so he promised to bless the world through him. He said, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Abraham went on and had a son, Isaac, and a grandson, Jacob, who inherited the promises God had given Abraham. God changed Jacob's name to Israel and the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Trace their history back to those three men, those three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was Genesis. Then we move on to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we see in those those other four books of of the Pentateuch, the descendants of Abraham found themselves in Egypt due to a famine in their land. And eventually they became slaves in Egypt and suffered great oppression there for 400 years. God raised up a deliverer among them, Moses, who was mightily used of God to bring judgment upon Egypt. And of course you remember the story of the ten terrible plagues, at the conclusion of which the Israelites were literally exposed, expulsed out of the land of Egypt and set free. And Moses led them toward the land that he had long ago promised Abraham. However, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the Israelites had sinned and and, uh, God barred them from their entry into the promised land and caused them to wander in judgment for 40 years. That brings us to the book of Joshua, which at the end of those 40 years, Moses was dead. Also not allowed to enter into the promised land. And his successor, Joshua, led the Israelites in the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. As the book of Joshua ends, much of Canaan was under the control of the Israelites, but not all of it. That took us to the book of Judges and Ruth. In Judges and Ruth, there was a long period of time during which Israel was in the land, but not always in control of the land. During those years, when the people were uh, in submission to and obedience to God, he blessed them. But when they were in rebellion to God and, and, and sinned and turned away from him, he allowed their enemies to oppress them. He would raise up judges, hence the name of the book Judges. He would raise up judges to help them during those times. But there's a key phrase during that period of time in the history of Israel. It's found all throughout Judges. It is this. There was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That brings us up to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. Six books which detail the hundreds of years of history when they had the times of the kings. As the time of the Judges came to an end, the people cried out to Samuel the prophet and said, you know what? Every other nation on the face of the earth has a king and we don't have a king. We want to have a king. And so Samuel reluctantly gave in and God reluctantly gave in and they anointed Saul king. He was a failure. He was a mess. He was a disappointment. And God replaced him with David. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel and and the, the man after God's own heart. Arguably the greatest king that Israel ever saw. Under David, the nation of Israel became great and became a world power. His son Solomon succeeded him. His son Solomon, who was the wisest man the Bible says who has lived, who wrote the majority of the Proverbs and under Solomon the kingdom expanded. It enjoyed amazing peace and prosperity during his reign. Then Solomon died and his son Rehoboam took the throne. His son Rehoboam was a fool And under Rehoboam, it's amazing, is it not, that the wisest man in the world had the dumbest son in the world, but it's about the truth. Rehoboam was a fool, and under Rehoboam, the the nation of Israel split. The ten northern tribes rebelled against Rehoboam, and under Jeroboam, they went off and formed what would then be known as the northern kingdom of Israel. And Judah and Benjamin remained with the house of David, with Rehoboam, and thereafter were known as the kingdom of Judah. The books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles tell the long history of the many kings who rose throughout those many years. Uh, The kings of both the northern kingdoms and the kings of the the southern kingdom. The northern kings were all bad. Not a one was good. Uh, They just led Israel, the kingdom of Israel, further and further and further away from God. The southern kings were mostly good, but still many bad. And as a result, even that kingdom also gradually slipped further Further away from God. At the conclusion of that period, God judged both kingdoms and allowed them to be carried away by their enemies. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried away captive by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Judah, in 586 BC, with the sack of Jerusalem, was carried away captive into Babylon. If you're already in Nehemiah, you could flip back just a few pages to the very end of Second Chronicles, and we can read a few verses that describe that fall, that describe that bad, bad day. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse number 11. Zedekiah, who was the king in Judah at the time. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath to God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked the messengers of God despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. And get this phrase, I think this is one of the most horrifying, sobering phrases in all of the Bible, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him, and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And so, here's the history up to this point. The promised people, the people who who had the blessings of God, who were in the land, who had Jerusalem, all of that are gone, dispersed. The northern kingdom is dispersed into the kingdom of the Assyrians, and now the southern kingdom of Judah has been carried away captive to Babylon. It's a very sad story, isn't it? Aren't you thankful the history didn't end there? We would never got to the book of Nehemiah, the history ended there, because we haven't got there yet. The history of Israel wasn't over yet. The Babylonian Empire didn't last forever. No empire ever does. And the Persian Empire superseded it. And when the Persian Empire came to power, it rose in its place in amazing, an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. There was a king of the Persian Empire named Cyrus. He had been prophesied by a name. Cyrus! king of Persia decreed that the exiles could return and rebuild their land, their city, and their temple. You can read about that. If you keep reading in 2 Chronicles, I'll let you read that on your own. You can read that very decree where he says, whoever wants to go, go. Go back. Rebuild your city. Rebuild your lands. And so with the blessings of the king of Persia, people began to return to the land of Israel and to their city, Jerusalem. And that brings us up to Ezra, the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. Ezra describes the first two waves of people who returned. In 538 B.C., a man by the name of Zerubbabel. How many of you want to name one of your sons Zerubbabel? Pretty good name, actually. He was a good guy. Zerubbabel led the first wave of returning Jews back to Jerusalem. And then also chronicled in Ezra. In 515 B.C., Ezra the priest led a second wave of returnees and led them in the rebuilding of the temple. Sometime after that, we believe around 474 B.C., Uh, we have the book of Esther wedged in there and Esther and Mordecai rescued the Jews from the horrible plot against them and then in 444 BC Nehemiah 444 BC Nehemiah went to King Artaxerxes with his request to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so I don't know if that's helpful or not I realize that's a lot of information and I realize that some people don't like history but I find that very interesting and it's helpful to me to know how this book fits into the timeline of the history of the people of Israel in our Old Testament. And so that's our second question, where does it fit in? And then the last question, and we're still in our introduction, by the way. The last question that I would like to make sure we understand, kind of as background information is this, is, uh, okay, we have a reason to study it, we have a general idea of its place in history, but what's the book about? What can we expect to learn from this book of Nehemiah if we're going to study it? And so let me just give you some thoughts about that. We'll see that this book describes Nehemiah's return. He returns to the demolished city of Jerusalem, the rubble-strewn city of Jerusalem, and he rebuilds the city walls. He's going to undertake the project. He's going to succeed. It's it's one of the most amazing stories in the Bible, how he succeeded in doing that. 52 days, I believe, is what it took him to accomplish what others had tried to do for hundreds of years. And yet he was able to do it. And so we're going to see his great success here in building. And so the book is about building, but it doesn't stop there. The book also describes the problems that he faces during the task, and they are legion. We'll meet a guy by the name of Sanballat, another good name. A guy by the name of Tobiah, two wicked, nasty rulers of Samaria who give Nehemiah nothing but grief throughout this time. He's going to fight against them, and he's going to win. We're going to see the tremendous obstacles that are placed in his path, not from those outside, but from those inside. You know, obstacles like discouragement and fatigue and those kinds of things that we all face each and every day. We're going to see him tempted by those who pretend to be people of God and try to get him to go down a path he ought not to go. We're going to see him tempted and struggling against obstacles within, from within. And he will... Win. And so the book is not just about building. The book is also about battling, building and battling. He'll build the wall. He'll battle his enemies. But the book will not yet be done. Interestingly, we'll only be in around I don't know chapter six or seven at that particular point. And we'll see that it goes on. And he's he's not satisfied to have just succeeded at building. He's not satisfied to have just won in battling we'll see that he's also going to continue leading his people to become the people of God that they should have been all along. And so what's the book about? I would suggest it's about building and battling and becoming. And that's kind of the title of our whole series as we go through this.
1: So with all that background
0: in place, and I promise you the sermon is not nearly as long as the introduction this morning, with all that background in place, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll just make a couple points and then give you something to think about. Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest part of the heavens. Yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who desire to hear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer in chapter 1 we see that Nehemiah while employed as cupbearer to Artaxerxes king of Persia and I know that we don't see that name in there but history tells us that's who this king was Artaxerxes king of Persia while Nehemiah was employed as his cupbearer he learned of the disastrous condition of his homeland we see that in verses 2 and 3 we see that he was heartbroken to hear of their state, that he spent some time in mourning and fasting in prayer. We see that in verse 4. And then we see that he prayed a very particular prayer, which is recorded for us in verses 5 through 11, which uh, we'll maybe deal with that, the entirety of that prayer some other time. It's a good thing to look at, and there's a lot of good stuff in it. But for the sake of time today, I just want you to notice one little part of that prayer. We're going to zero in on one phrase, and it's the very last words he prayed. Look at verse number 11. He said, let your servant prosper this day. I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah had heard the reports of what had happened in Jerusalem. And in his prayer, he was putting a plan into motion. And that plan was something that we're going to see unfold throughout the rest of the book. He had decided here that it was not enough for him to pray. He must act. He must do something about the terrible state of God's people, God's city, and God's name. That's what happened in chapter 1. And I want to make just a little application from it. I don't know. We may come back to chapter 1 a little bit more. But for the sake of time today, I would like for you to just think about those thoughts and make some application. Application number one could be described by this phrase. This is not my problem. This is not my problem. Did you notice the bookends of our passage this morning in verse number one? He said, I was in Shushan, the citadel. Some of you may have a Bible that says, I was in Shushan, the palace. I was in the palace. In verse number 11, he said, I was the king's cupbearer. Did you notice those two phrases? Beginning and the end. He tells us an amazing thing about himself. I was the king's cupbearer. I was in the palace. Uh, One commentator said this about this matter of being a cupbearer. I'll just read his words because it describes it well. He said, the office of cupbearer sounds rather menial to us today, but this was not the situation. The office of cupbearer came about in ancient societies because of the danger that an emperor or king might be poisoned by some rival. The cupbearer was a trusted person, appointed to care for and taste the wine to make sure it was safe before it was served to the king. Such a person was obviously highly esteemed and trusted to begin with. Because of his constant and regular access to the ruler, he naturally acquired influence far beyond all but a handful of other military leaders and nobles. Moreover, in some periods of history... The title cupbearer became more a title for one in a high position like chief of staff or cabinet minister than a functional definition. I was in the palace. I was the cupbearer. I was an important guy, is what he was saying. If there was ever a man who we might look at and say, he surely is too busy to be bothered with the things of God, it would have been Nehemiah. If there was ever a man who had a brilliant career and wonderful opportunities before him in this world, it would have been Nehemiah. He was in the palace. He served daily in the very presence of the king. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see he also served daily in the very presence of the queen, which was an extremely, extremely rare thing that the king would allow someone in the presence of the queen. A busy influential man at the very top of his career path. And I don't know about you, but I don't think we would have been surprised, would we, to find out that he was just simply too care, too busy to care about the struggling people back in Jerusalem. Not my problem. Not my problem. In my preparing for this sermon on the book of Nehemiah, I have read through the book multiple times. John MacArthur said one time, I don't remember where I read this from him, but he said whenever he prepares to study it or to preach a series on a book, he reads that book 50 times fifty times. Now I did not read this book fifty times, I confess to you. But I think I probably did read it twenty or thirty. Somewhere around in there I read it a awful lot of times too. I read it in the King James and the New King James and the NIV and the New American Standard and the ESV and the Message, the Good News, and I don't remember what else. The New Living Translation, every every one that I've got, I they go over and over I read this thing until I was trying to get it in my mind what it means. And you know one of the things that came through very, very clear to me as I as I as I went through this exercise is that I got more and more convicted by this man, Nehemiah, because he was not too busy to care. He did care, even though if there was ever a man who could have used that as an excuse, it was Nehemiah. It's interesting how it's always the busy ones God uses. Have you ever noticed that? God convicted us this morning. If we can view the need of our community and our families and our friends for Christ and say in our hearts, that's not my problem. God help us this morning. If we can hear of things like the recent devastation in Joplin and other places where we've seen tornadoes and floods and earthquakes and and tsunamis and all that and say in our minds, that is not my problem. God help us. God help us, if we can read about things like the sweeping influence of Islam across this world, a false and dangerous religion which is sending multiplied thousands to hell. God help us, if we can hear that and say, that is not my problem. May God break our hearts today. If we know that Jesus is coming back any minute. And the world wants to laugh at that truth, but it is the truth. (laughs) Regardless of whether a mistaken pastor gets up and makes a fool of himself, it is still the truth. And God help us if we know it. And we know that our world is lost. And we know that hundreds of people per minute are dying and going to hell, and that is a fact. And we say it is not our problem. Application number two can be summed up and described by this phrase. This is my problem. This is my problem. You see, there was a very real problem. Verse number three. Verse number three says, They said to me, the survivors who were left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. It was a very real need. The fact that it was not happening in Shushan, the fact that it was not happening in the palace of the king did not change the fact that it was occurring. And it was real. Yesterday started the annual thing we do here of reaching Randolph one day at a time. I have a goal of reaching every single person in Randolph, knocking on every single door, giving everybody the opportunity to know there's a church here that cares about them and there's a Savior that loves them and died for them. And every time I go up and down the streets of Randolph, little quaint Randolph, Every time I go up and down the streets of this and talk to people, I am astonished. I am struck by the number of people who simply don't care about eternity. The number of people who are completely blind and lost and throwing their lives away on trivialities that amount to nothing and are going to die and go to hell. The need in our town is real. Your neighbors and mine are lost and going to hell. The, they are in great distress and reproach. The walls broken down. This is my problem. It is our problem as a church. The question is, are we too busy to care? Yesterday, Beth and I uh, spent the evening with some friends. and While we were waiting for some burgers to grill, I my cell phone rang. As it did just a minute ago. Who in the world would call me during church? What's the matter with uh, I don't know about that. But so my cell phone rang. And I picked it up, and it was our brother Bill Robinstein telling me that Bonnie had gone home to be with the Lord just a little bit earlier that day yesterday morning during our men's prayer breakfast we prayed for several of our number who are going through serious, serious, serious health issues these stories all have something in common these are our people these are our brothers our sisters in Christ they're in the midst of pain they're in the midst of need they're in great distress and reproach the wall's broken down the problem is real whether it's happening in my house or not it's real And God forgive us if we're too busy to care. You see, Nehemiah heard the problem, and his reaction sets the stage for the rest of this book. It shows us his heart. It shows us why God would use him so mightily. It's because he cared. He cared about God's people. He cared about God's city. He cared about God's name. This is my problem. You know, it's been said people don't care how much you know, so they know how much you care. Nehemiah cared. He cared enough to ask in the first place. Verse number 2, that's an important phrase. He said, I asked. Did you notice that I asked? He cared enough to ask in the first place. He, and because he cared, he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. Verse 4, he spent all kinds of time just on that reaction. When he heard the need, he wept. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed. When was the last time we cared that much? He understood that these fall off people were important. I love verse 10. Verse number 10, he said, these are your servants, your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Yours, God. He understood these people were important. They were, as we would say today, souls for whom Christ died, if we put it in New Testament terminology. He knew that. And because he cared, he decided to do something about it. Verse number 11. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He had a plan, and we'll see more of it as we get into chapter 2. He planned to go to the king. He planned to ask for a favor. He planned to give up his role as cupbearer in his most influential of ways. He planned to go where the walls were down and where the city was in ruin, ruins and he planned to rebuild it for the glory of God. Ask me if I care is a common sarcastic reply we often hear we often use sometimes. But in closing this morning, I want to use it in a very serious way. Ask me if I care do I care do you care do we care do we see the problem that all around us they are in great distress and reproach that the wall has broken down do we see these are his servants his people or are we too busy to care? I wonder this morning which response is mine which is yours And as we begin this study in Nehemiah, oh, how we need to see his heart here. We won't get any of the rest of it if we don't see his heart and learn from his response. And may God help us as we continue over the next few weeks. You know me, I never know how long these things are going to go. But as we continue over these next few weeks, may God help us to have such a heart. May God help us to care. Father, we thank you for this Wonderful book of Nehemiah, and Lord, I pray today, oh, a lot of information in this sermon, I know that. I pray I've not glazed people's eyes over to the point where they don't, they don't hear the name thrust yet here today. I pray today, Father, that we would see the heart of Nehemiah. Lord, you're asking us this morning if we care. And I pray that you'd help us do a work in our heart and lives so that we could answer in the affirmative. Forgive us, O God, when we put things in front of your work. Forgive us, O God, when we put things in front of your people and their need. Forgive us when we are consumed with the trivialities of our lives to the point where we don't recognize the things that really matter. Help us, Father, to learn this. And Lord, help us to see that as Nehemiah went forward, he accomplished great and mighty things, and it all started here. It all started because he was willing to see the need and care about it. And give his life to you to help me. I pray today, Father, for these who are here. I don't know what their needs might be. There may be some here who don't know you as Savior. And though we haven't talked about the Lord Jesus Christ here, I see Jesus here. I see a picture of Jesus in Nehemiah. I see that Jesus looked at our lives and saw that the walls were broken down and we were in great distress and he gave his life on the cross of Calvary that we might have salvation from sin. What a picture. And so, Lord, maybe there are some here today who need to give their heart and life to him. But, Father, this was primarily for the believers amongst us, and so I pray you'd help us all to look into our hearts. And, Lord, if we need to confess today the sin of carelessness, may we do so. If we need to rededicate ourselves to the to the cause of those around us who are in such great distress and despair, and whose, the walls of whose lives are broken down, I pray you'd help us to do so. Whatever the need might be, Father, will you work in our hearts as we sing, as we give your people an opportunity to respond, I pray. Holy Spirit, Do a work today, we pray in Jesus' name.